Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's the podcast where we answer your emails because we like you. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Bibbs E-Y, because we like you. My name is Whitney. B I B B I A N I. Doesn't quite fit as a well. A Bibiani rocks the house. Bit bit a Bibiani. How many times did you do that in high school? Uh, uh, Mickey Mouse rocks the house. Yeah. Well, that was. I'm a little younger than you, so that was mm-hmm. actually like still on when I was like. Yeah. By high school, it wasn't cool anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, we didn't. Mm-hmm. We, the Mickey Mouse did not continue to rock the house through my high school years. All right. If you're not familiar with what we're talking about, there was the Mickey Mouse Club, like back in like the 50s, 60s with Annette Funicello, Mm -hmm. and that was a kid series from Disney, and then they brought back the new Mickey Mouse Club in the early 90s, which featured such future superstars as Britney Spears Mm -hmm. and Ryan Gosling. Wasn't Justin Timberlake involved in there too? I would be, yeah. I, he might have been actually. It was like just you know, people yeah. got big eventually. And- well, some some big actors did like things when they were kids. I remember there was an episode of Romper Room mm. with um, uh, Alex Russell Beale. Crow because he went on to do Romper Stomper. The, that's exactly right. No, was, who was in it? No, it was uh, Ali McBeal. Oh, uh, that's fun. Uh, um, uh, I'm having a brain fart on her name. Oh, Callista Flockhart. Callista Flockhart. Yeah. And she was really upset because her first name was Callista, that they would never sort of say her name. It's like, there's Bobby, there's Jennifer. Like, they chose the kids with the really common first names. Uh. They would never say, there's Callista. Ah, bastards. And she, and she got really mad about that when she was, like, four. Anyway, the new Mickey Mouse Club mm-hmm. had the old Mickey Mouse Club theme song, but then they decided to add, like, this new, like cool, extreme, edgy version of the Mickey Mouse Club, mm. which is actually more embarrassing than the original Mickey Mouse Club, which was at least <laughs> genuine and sweet. So anyway, that's what I was making fun of. My name is Whitney Seibold. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm the other co-host. <laughs> <laughs> and we do more than just reminisce about 90s nostalgia, although that's a big part of our show. That's a significant part, yeah. whether we like it or not. I like it fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is We've Got Mail. We answer your emails. You can write us in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and you can uh, criticize our critiques on our various podcasts. You can ask us questions about movies, the industry, movie history. You can talk to us about something that has nothing to do with movies if you want. Uh, the important thing is that we have all these podcasts and we wanted to give one to you. So this is your time. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to jump right into mm-hmm. some emails. We read as many as we can. Whitney, who's our first email from? This first email is from Ori. Hi, hello, Ori. Ori. Uh, hello, Will and Wit. Sending from Israel. Hi, that's well, awesome. Hello, Israel. Um, my questions regard the idea of movies about politics you don't agree with. Okay. Uh, I will give you an, uh, an explanation before I ask these questions. I want to say that I don't push any ideologies. I simply want to confront you with some thoughts. Ooh, I love being confronted with thoughts. I also love that. Um, I'm going. a big fan and have a huge respect for you guys as critics and humanitarians. All of this comes from love. Uh, one, you say that Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. 1984 film, uh, pushes Reagan-era economic thought. That this is something we've said. Yeah, it's about deregulation uh, and uh, you know the importance of the, capitalism. The, the, the you know, EPA is the bad guy. The small business owners are the the good guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very very Reagan. It's a story about of so, entrepreneurship, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what comes off from pointing that uh, pointing that out is a thought that these the movie's intentions were political from inception. Uh, now we know that mainstream Hollywood picks go by a formula and that there should be prote- protagonists and antagonists in order for there to be conflicts. That's basic yeah. play stuff. Uh, by that thinking. 
Wouldn't that mean that movies choose to have an antagonist who represents something you don't think uh, should be antagonized mean that the people push an agenda? What I mean to say is that the most likely scenario of the inception of Ghostbusters was not, we don't like government regulation, but rather, wouldn't it be funny if people who deal with the supernatural were like plumbers? That thinking leads to the idea that the Ghostbusters need to open businesses and the people who make life harder on business, and overall good uh, for good reasons, but still not easy, are the regulators equals government bad. I don't know that every film is political, uh, but you want to point these things out for people who make movies to be more aware of these things, but does that mean the movies are bad? I'm asking because your reviews sometimes feel affected by what you demand for the films to be on your moral-slash-political spectrum before asking what the movie is trying to be, and is it successful at that? Oh, there's, a, there's a two as well, but let's let, address let, that. that. That's a um, big one right there. Yeah. Um, I, the first thing you brought up is uh, the, <coughs> the idea of author's intent. Mm. Uh, did the makers of Ghostbusters intend to make a political statement with mm. Ghostbusters, or an economic statement, if you want to draw a distinction? Um, and the answer to that is, I don't think it matters. I think you're probably right. I think on some level, the the fundamental joke of Ghostbusters is, what if people who had this fantastic job catching ghosts, using sci-fi technology, were basically just exterminators mm. in New York City? And would if they had to deal with all the same issues that any other small business would have to deal with in New York City? It's that's a, the joke. Juxtaposition of the supernatural and the unbelievably mundane. Exactly. And that's a great joke, and it works really, really awesome. And you're right. The natural extrapolation of that is to make sort of the EPA the bad guy is to make regulation the bad guy. However, here's what it boils down to. Uh, they didn't have to make the movie about that. Mm. They could have said to themselves, okay, well, that's a natural extension, but I disagree with that message, and we don't really don't want to propose that or support that, mm. so let's make the movie about something else. And they could have easily done that. Mm. Also, regardless of whether they supported the message or thought it was merely incidental... It came out at a time when we were talking about these things. It yeah, supported yeah, yeah. Um, these concepts that were in the, the cultural dialogue. And as a result, it's hard to extricate it and just say, oh, it has nothing to do with it, even though everything in the text supports it having something to do with at least a general position on economic disparity. Yes, absolutely. Um yeah, it, it doesn't matter. That's the, the best way to put that. Uh, in terms of author's intent. It, yeah, it, whether or not they intended it uh, is is insignificant because that's what's in the movie. And uh, yeah. especially when uh, we in the present are looking back at a film that was made in 1984, we have a little bit more context mm -hmm. for the kinds of political philosophies that were in the air of a previous era. Yeah, when you're in the middle of something, it's a little hard to like sort of mm. take a step back and look at the big picture because you're worried about the immediate fallout of every single thing happening in society. Or, or just uh, how ephemeral those political ideas might be. Yeah, in the end, long yeah. run, they might not have lasted. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we're able to say in the present that that's what, those th what that film turned out to be about in retrospect. Does it make the movie good or bad? Well, no, I don't think so. I think that is simply a little bit of... Uh, I suppose sociological analysis, yeah. which is part of a critic's job. We're we're uh, we are in a way sort of amateur sociologists. It's part of our job. It's not mm -hmm. the biggest part, but well, you know, every, if, if every work of art is a statement about the yeah, world yeah. that made that. Work exactly, of that, that, yeah. and that's what I was about to say. And this is sort of a, a line we fall back on on criticism a lot: is that every piece of art is comes out of the world that made it, and everything is either. 
uh, criticizing something that came before, criticizing art that came before, criticizing the world around it, or uh, tacitly approving of something in the world that they don't feel like is worthy of criticism. And if it's not tacit, it's usually propaganda. Yeah. Which yeah. is its own genre, basically. Mm, it's I'm, not even necessarily the worst thing in the world. It's just mm. extremely blunt and yeah, yeah. oftentimes uh, a little uh, tricky. I, I've, I've uh, come out and said that the, uh, the Avengers movies are pro-military movies. Because they're all about combat. They're about joining the army. I, I don't disagree. I, yeah. I, I don't necessarily think it's the headshot you think it is, but I also yeah. don't disagree when you bring it up and you cite your... Yeah, I, like, I, I don't think... Like, I think there's a lot more going on. There's this yeah. huge tapestry of characters, and there's a lot of different littler things going on. But I think overall, you look at those movies as a big sort of military commercial. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to uh, say that that makes them bad or good. Right. Uh, whether or not you approve of that philosophy. So, um, yeah, for the record, if we go off of the political or economic philosophies of mm. Ghostbusters, and yeah, I support small businesses, I support mm. entrepreneurship, but at the same time, I also support government regulation. <laughs> and, right. If you think about it, Walter Peck is wrong in specifics. Because he shuts down, you know, the well, the, the reactor at the bottom of the of the thing. The but his thing... overall principle is actually quite sound. Well, he he is concerned because they have like a really dangerous like nuclear reactor. Yeah, in, a, in their building, they have that's a nuclear unregulated. accelerator yeah. on their back. That's how they. Mm. That's not safe. That's I, not. They they are even afraid of it. Like they yeah. switch them on, it makes this big humming noise, and they kind of back away from these monstrosity machines. The they're wearing. Ghostbusters know the that only. Like, they specifically say that if we accidentally uh -huh. bump into each other while we're catching ghosts, all of reality will unmake itself. Uh -huh. Yeah, Walter Peck has a point. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes in, he says, and he doesn't say, I'm shutting you down. What he says is, in a kind of an arrogant fashion, I want to know a little bit more about what you do here. Yeah, he doesn't and go in right Bill away Murray, and shut him Bill down. Bill Murray lights a cigarette and is addicted right to his face, yeah. and that makes him mad. All Walter Peck needed, he <laughs> needed to be shown around. He even, he even, they condescended to him and made him say please mm. and he said please and they still didn't show him that what they were doing was safe so yeah he's not being entirely he's, unreasonable he's, uh, Walter Peck is not in the wrong he's depicted as a villain he, he does the wrong thing but he, in principle he's not wrong however even though mm. I actually generally speaking support Walter Peck I love Ghostbusters because <laughs> it's a really great movie. It's, it's, it's very, it's it very tells funny. A story Those really characters well. are really and, funny. And, and anything political that it says that I disagree with, I don't think goes into the realm of poor taste. And that mm. is what I think we talk about. And dividing I think from, good, from good and bad. Yeah, I think that's a little different because when we talk about, like, okay, politics. All right, so you want to talk about conservative economic policies and you know, we believe in trickle-down economics mm. and I don't. And you talk about something like, say, Brewster's Millions, which is all about trickle-down economics and how if one person had an enormous fortune but they used that fortune entirely to uh, fund other people and mm. that would improve the world, that would work. Now, in practice, I know that that doesn't work because I've paid enough attention. We've, we've tried it enough to see that it doesn't work. But I can appreciate that movie because its intentions are good. <clears throat> it's a funny film. It doesn't really do anything mm -hmm. in poor taste. If, on the other hand, your ethos is something hateful, you know, like if we're supporting politically something like these people don't deserve rights, mm. 
I'm not going to find that in good taste, even if the rest of the movie is good. I yeah. am turned off by the ugliness of the message. So that, for me, is the line. It's not whether I disagree. It's whether the point that you're making I find to be in poor taste. Mm. And on some level, film criticism, a lot of it, unless you're just doing pure critical analysis and leaving qualitative statement out of it, as soon as you get into qualitative statements, you're talking about taste. Mm -hmm. And you just have to explain yeah, why yeah, you yeah. find this in good or bad taste. I agree with everything. All right, cool. Everything you just All said. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the second half of the email. And the second half of the email, number two. Yeah. Uh, continuing on the political film line, what do you feel about movies that tell real stories but as statements you might disagree with? Example, the movie Brian Banks, a movie I haven't seen. I haven't seen that one. Tells the real-life story of a footballer, Brian Banks, who was accused of sexual assault that turned out to be false. I was trying to be an Oscar bait issue film starring Aldous Hodge and Greg Kinnear. I feel very conflicted about the movies, a movie such as this. On the one hand, it's a true story of a big tragedy. On the other hand, putting out a film with this subject in 2018, at the height of the Me Too era, can't help but look like a counter-argument against the movement. Yeah. Trying to put myself in the head of a studio chief trying to decide of whether it's better or worse to make the movie or not. Both choices feel like you're erasing one side of the story. And someone is trying to get hurt by it. What do you think? Sorry for the long letter again. Not writing from a place of hate or disagreement, but from a place of challenge. Best regards, Ori. I love oh. being written to from a place of challenge. I love being written to from a place of challenge, and I think those are very perfectly reasonable <clears throat> challenges. And yeah. again, and I have not seen Brian Banks, so I can't speak to that one. And I, yeah, I can't speak to Brian Banks, but I have seen the films of like Clint Eastwood, for instance, yeah. and uh, or or even um, Steven Spielberg on the other side of the political spectrum, mm, where you're trying to make an Im Im <clears throat> immediate political statement. Yeah, like or, telling, or even just by accident, it comes out at a time. Yeah, when this is not necessarily part of the current rhetoric. Exactly. To, to repeat the point, uh, all films come out in a particular political environment. And yeah. if in the middle of the Me Too era, somebody puts out a movie about somebody who is falsely accused of sexual assault, and it makes... And the uh, you know, I haven't seen Brian Banks, but what does it make the, the people who accuse this man into the villains of the piece? Mm. Yes, that is a counter-argument to Me Too, mm. even though Me Too is not mentioned in that movie. Well, I mean, you look at even, even excuse me. Even here, here's if an example. Me too like, is not mentioned in that movie. To, to mention Clint Eastwood, who was a pretty staunchly conservative filmmaker, at least at this point in his career. Mm -hmm. I don't know if his earlier films all had that necessarily philosophy attached to them, but a lot mm -hmm. of them did. Yeah. Richard Jewell. I saw Richard Jewell. I can speak to Richard Jewell. Okay. And Richard Jewell isn't specifically about the same thing, but it is about uh, the way that the news can work itself up into you know sort of a riot into a, a, a sort of a maniacal uh, context and it can perform acts of character assassination. Now, this is something that is not uncommon. This has happened mm. as long as there's been news, basically. Oh, pu public, yeah, ask Monica Lewinsky about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, like, the idea that someone is in the public crosshairs for a good reason or a bad reason, and for whatever reason, the news has decided that they're big news, we need to put them in the headlines all the time, they sell papers, they sell ad space, we need to talk about them all the time, and we're going to describe them in negative light because that's what we've got. Mm. Okay. That sucks. Richard Jewell is a movie about how that sucks. It's a bigger story about a real-life security guard who actually prevented a lot of deaths in a terrorist bombing. He found a, a bomb in a public space. He did all the right things. And some people did end up dying, but it ended up being mm -hmm. way less bad than it would have been if he hadn't been there. But 
through a series of, you know... Media misinterpretations. Well, partly or... media misinterpretations, partly because, you know, <laughs> the, the law enforcement will look into everybody there. Mm. But because one of the people they looked into, because he was there, was Richard Jewell, the media latched on to that, oh, he's a suspect. And he became kind of public enemy number one, and he was sort of indicted in the media. Mm. That sucks for Richard Jewell. Yeah. Especially, they, they ended up catching the real guy. Like, he had nothing to do with it. That sucks for Richard Jewell. And that is a good story to tell. If you want to tell a story about how the media can be irresponsible. Mm -hmm. The problem with Richard Jewell is that in telling the story of how character assassination is bad, the movie performs an act of character assassination. It takes the real-life reporter who broke the story about Richard Jewell in the Mm -hmm. first place. This this is the controversy. And she's played by Olivia Wilde. And rather than portraying her with some degree of responsibility responsibility or even realism, apparently, if you talk to people who actually knew her... It portrays her like this cartoonish villain who only wanted to destroy. Mm. And that is irresponsible. That is clearly a conscious decision to demonize somebody to make a political Mm. point, or at least in this case, a cultural point. And, of course, mm. the great irony of this is that's the exact opposite of the point you were trying to make. That's why Richard Jewell went from being a very good movie to being a bad movie for me. And if... If you want to tie that into a larger politic, um, what is President Donald Trump doing? He's the anti-media president. He's yeah. the one who's – if you ask him, he coined the, the phrase fake news. Uh, Popularized it anyway. He also invented chicken wings if you ask him. You know, whatever <laughs> – Whatever, whatever it is, he did it and he Built did it tremendously. Uh, I, I, there wouldn't be buildings without him. Invented yeah. uh, the concept of the wall. <laughs> and he uh, – yeah, he – has very viciously come out against the media. So to release a film that specifically is about the news media in the Trump era... Vilifying is, it in the cartoonish is, sense. ...is directly agreeing with what the president is saying. Yeah. Whether or not... Now, Clint Eastwood, I know, is a conservative. I know he doesn't approve of Donald Trump. He said so in public. Well, not now, anyway. But, well, yeah. Now, now he says he was going to vote for the other billionaire. Uh, exactly. <laughs> who's, who's also conservative. Right. Uh, but... Uh, he is clearly making a political statement on the side of what this presidential administration is saying. Yeah. Wh- whether or not he is directly saying it, whether he's consciously doing that, that's what this movie is now about. So, uh, And the counterpoint to that is a movie like The Post, which has nothing to do with Donald Trump and yet has everything to do with Donald Trump. Yeah, it takes place decades before. Mm-hmm. I mean, Donald Trump was alive, but well, was no, before he was even famous, before anyone knew yeah, who he yeah. was. Uh, it took place during the Nixon administration. Yeah. And it was about how the Washington Post decided to publish the Watergate uh, papers. Yeah. That was... No, it wasn't the Watergate. It was, the, the, it was the Vietnam... Uh, the, the Shit, what was it called? The the, the war papers before yeah. Watergate. It was pre-Watergate. But, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was all of the essentially classified information that proved that the war in Vietnam was... Was basically bas- politically motivated. And, yeah, yeah, it had it nothing to do... It was a bad idea. More people were dying than we talked about. It had mm. nothing to do with actual principle it was, and everything it was all, to do with... It was all lies and cover-ups yeah. and done for uh, sketchy purposes. And exactly. uh, the Washington Post came upon the papers that proved all of this, and there was this big... Uh, big moment where Meryl Streep was on the phone saying, yeah, 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 let's publish, let's publish. And that's the greatest yeah. moment it, in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's actually a great movie. People need I, to watch that movie. I, I think I think uh, it was so politically on the nose when it came out yeah. that people kind of rejected it because it seemed too on the nose. I, mm. Give that movie a couple of years. Give people a little bit of distance gonna, from it. It's going to seem really, really important. I think it's going to go down as one of Spielberg's better late-era films. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know what? I love his late-era. <laughs> I, I, really do- I, I love what he's doing. Like, he's made years. a couple of turkeys, but mm. who hasn't? Like, yeah. Well, you know, Ready Player One isn't 
very good, but well, whatever. And when I think when I refer to his later era pictures, I refer to his non-action pictures. Like yeah. I, I think Tintin, Spielberg, Ritter, the one, historian, and, and, and uh, Crystal Skull. His heart is not in those movies at all. He just, I think he had a lot of verve. I, th- in I think Tintin. he, I think I think he lost a lot fun. of his taste for that kind of movie. I think Tintin mm. is him having fun with new technology, yeah. and unlike the new technology he was playing with in Ready Player One, mm. I think it's got some real innocence and vigor and uh, vigor to it. All right. Uh, yeah, but when we think about late era Spielberg, yeah, we're think, thinking about Spielberg the historian. But yeah, the, the post, you could say, oh, that's just a, a sweet little his, historical picture about this controversy from the 1970s. And no, it turns out that's a direct refutation of an anti-media president and the importance and the power the media has over an irresponsible presidential administration. Yep. It, it, it is direct attack from the media on the current presidential administration. Richard Jewell and The Post are two opposite ends telling God, two different really great uh, telling two different uh, angles of the same kind of political issue that all come back to the president. If I was making uh, if I was teaching a class uh, about like film criticism, I would do a double feature of that. Of The Post we and need the to Richard do a, Jewell. Do a yeah. compare and contrast this. Talk about how each of these films are political mm. on the opposite ends of a spectrum yeah, and how yeah, yeah. either so, of them might be too heavy-handed. I mean, no, that's well, the no, lobbied at the post. Which of those is a better film? Now a lot of critics pointed out immediately that in inaccurately portraying one of these characters, it's kind of shooting itself in the foot because it's... Uh, Richard Jewell. Richard, that is yeah. Richard Jewell. Yeah. Uh, the only criticisms of The Post were uh, it's kind of slow-moving and boring. Well, also a little heavy-handed. And yeah, well, and it's, yeah. it's Spielberg. You can't yeah. accuse him of being subtle. It, it's fair. <clears throat> But yeah, you look at like Munich. Munich's very much about 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Lincoln. Lincoln is actually about gay marriage uh, yes. in many ways. Uh, yeah, it's about the fight for, for mm-hmm. contemporary, for civil, contemporary civil, civil rights, rights yeah. telling an old civil rights story. Yeah. Um, I know about Bridge, what's Bridge of Spies? Does Bridge of Spies have a particular corollary? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's a Cold War story, and I'm not really sure what the, the political corollary is. I'm Just, to remember exactly I think when it's it about, I think it was more about sort of the end of the, the quagmire of the Bush administration. I think Maybe, that's yeah. what that film was kind of criticized. Even though I it came it. came out during the Obama years, but I think it was about how, like, government spy rigmarole is actually a lot more damaging, even when it what comes is, to, like, simple mistakes. What, what is a traitor? Like, there's a good line in Bridge of Spies mm. that they're talking about, oh, this guy, Mark Rollins, is a, a mm. Soviet spy living in America, and he's captured, and so there's Russia wants him back. And the United States doesn't want to give him back. And Tom Hanks has to defend him, even though he's, like, the most hated man in the country. And people are like, he's a traitor. And Tom Hanks is like, no, he's not. He was, he's Russian. <laughs> he's very loyal to Russia. That's not a traitor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just a spy. <laughs> like You call him a spy and say that's bad if you want, but he's not a traitor. <laughs> everyone's just like, isn't that splitting hairs? He gives a shit. And he's just like, I know, no, no, but no, I'm his lawyer. Those are what important. Do you want me to yeah. Do? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, everything is... Uh, Criticizing some sort of political thing around it, whether or not it's active or not. And yeah. again, it, what you said, you, you said it very eloquently, it all comes down to your personal taste. And if you think the message that uh, the message that the film is giving you is an irresponsible one, then as a critic, you have to say that. Yeah. You have to say, I and think, you have to explain I, why. I, yeah. Exactly. You yeah. have to say this. This tells a very irresponsible message about you know, a very irresponsible politic. It condones some very irresponsible things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that some people might approve of, mm-hmm. but if you've noticed that as a critic, you have to say this goes against some sort of moral, personal moral code I have. But I also think it's your responsibility as a <clears throat> critic to point out if, some, if it does something well. Like again, Richard mm. Jewell is a hypocritical film. The performances are great in Richard Jewell. Okay, like, yeah, everyone's I, I, really I good in Richard that, Jewell. Yeah, like yeah. seriously, if it wasn't for that Olivia Wilde character, Richard Jewell would be a great film. Mm. Really, what? 
<laughs> I would totally support Richard Jewell. I think it's a very strong motion picture, except for that one part. But that one part is so bad, it sinks the whole thing. Mm. It yeah, just, it's its just the iceberg that hit the boat. Like, it's just that yeah. one, one chunk. Otherwise, it's the Titanic. Yeah, it's well, just as good as Titanic. Well. Richard Jewell, just as good as Titanic. I think it's William Bibiani. That's it. That, do not quote me. <laughs> it, says, it says Whitney Seibold putting words into William Bibiani's mouth. As long as it's credited that way. All right. <laughs> Let's move on. All right. Thank Here's, you for the letter, Ari. That was really, that was really insightful, and I'm glad we had a conversation about it. Here's a letter from Paula. Hello, Paula. Uh, hi. hi there, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Yes. That's my name now, Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> I want to start by saying how much I love listening to your podcasts every week. I have a tendency to fall behind on listening to many of my favorite podcasts for weeks at a time, but not you guys. Oh, oh thank, thank you. That's you. an honor. Somehow, no matter what mood I'm in, I'm always, I end up, always end up listening to your shows as soon as they come out. Well, we're, we're trying to get them out as quickly as we can. Yeah, sorry. There have been some delays this week. It's been, yeah, a, been I, a busy one. Busy days. Me falling asleep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to record a whole bunch yesterday, and, and, and I was Whitney, and I was asleep. If you so. if you follow my Twitter account, there's a bit where I'm just like waiting for Whitney Seibold to come over to record. He's running a little late. AMA, and then like two hours later, I'm still doing the AMA, and I'm like, he he went to bed. I'm, yeah. going, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to I'm bed going too. To yeah. I'm so sorry. I, I, just, I, I had a big day. Yesterday. Whitney made it up to me. He brought bagels this morning. I, I, it was apology bagels. They were really good. Yeah, yeah, they were, and they they. Uh, were specially baked in, in the Himalayas, sure. in the Cochest Mountains by a sacred... They, I got them at Ralph's. You got them at uh, Ralph's. <laughs> they were good bagels, though. Okay. Uh, I was thinking about this and trying to figure out why. After some deliberation, I realized it's just because you're both so nice. Oh, mm-hmm. pish. Um, <laughs> I know that sounds cheesy, but I think it, it's a rare kind of thing in media these days. Even when you disagree, you two have a way of not only accepting each other's opinions, but actively supporting each other in the process. That might seem like a small thing, but I love the example it sets for others, and it just made my heart happy to hear it every time. Oh, we're we're nice. Well, we try. We, we try. We, we're, no, we're trying not to. I mean, I, the older I, I get, the more important I realize that is. Like you, you think you think when you're young and angry, you want to be revolutionary, and later on you realize that niceness is the most revolutionary thing yeah, you can possibly be, be, do. Being being, kind, being a good person is the hardest thing you can do. It really I mean, is. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that message isn't sold off. That's enough. that's one of the reasons I think as you get older, you appreciate Superman more than Batman. Like oh, yeah. it's, so, <laughs> it's so easy to write a Superman story. Or, oh, it's so hard to write a Superman story. Like no, it's hard to be Superman. Like, it's hard to do the right thing always. It's really hard. My my, my mom pointed this out to me, because when I was a teenager, I was complaining, why is it when I go to, like, these cop movies, they're always, like, hard-drinking, wounded dudes who have, like, some flexible moral code? And my mom pointed out to me, well, that's probably easier to write. It it's is. probably hard hard to point, make these characters interesting and virtuous, because virtue is not seen as being interesting. Yeah. And... Uh, hence the Superman example. Superman is a virtuous human being. He is righteous. Yeah, so people how do find you that make, boring. Yeah, how, do you, how do you make righteousness dramatic? You know, there's no inner conflict. No, it's Superman actually... Superman stories are essentially stories about God. Like, God, what if well, God was one of us mm. and was actually trying to do the right thing? I mean, God like powers. He could do anything he wanted. Kal- Kal-El means vessel of God. Yeah, um, like, yeah. what, are we, what, what is that? What would he do? And he would actually... My favorite Superman stories are stories in which Superman is torn because the solution to a problem isn't obvious. It's not just, you know, mm. save people from the burning building. It's not just stop the bank robbers. It's, oh, no, wait, what's the right thing to do? There's a great story uh, called Superman <laughs> Peace on Earth. Okay. And it's a story. is a, It's a one-shot full of paintings by Alex Ross. It's like a coffee table book. Mm. And it's all about how Superman decides that, he, you know, he can't do this every day. But for one day, mm. no one on Earth will go hungry. Nice. Just for okay. one day. Yeah. He can't do it every day. He, just, he needs to sleep and do all this. Mm. But like for one day, he's going to do it. He has the power to reallocate the, the, the appropriate resources and yeah. feed the world. And okay. what he discovers is 
that's actually not possible. <laughs> like he tries to even, bring, he even tries, Superman can't. He do tries that, to bring yeah. it into war torn countries, and as soon as he leaves, like you know, the warlords come in and start taking all the supplies and everything. And Superman has to come back, but because of that, he has to deny other people, and he realizes that you just can't take care of everybody at once. Mm. You just can't, and that hurts him. That hurts yeah. his soul. Anyway, it's beautiful. I think that's a, a comment on Christianity. I think actually, it is. Yeah. Um, I think it is. And that's my point. I think Superman I think is a story Su- about Superman, God. Superman, yeah, is, is, is this very religious figure. Batman's yeah. just a down-to-earth, regular, rich dude. Yeah. He's, he's a sociopath who dresses in a costume and punches muggers in alleyways. I don't think he's a sociopath, yeah. but he's definitely got some problems. I, I, I tried that once, and the cops didn't like it. <laughs> I think we, we cut off anyway, the uh, yeah. anyway, uh, Sorry about that. Anyway, but it makes me curious and led me to my next question. How on earth did you two find each other? Huh. If it's not too personal a query, I'd love to hear the story of how you met, became friends, and started podcasting together. Um, uh, well, we've told this story before, but oh. it's always fun. Uh, well, we were neighbors. We yeah. lived in the same apartment Sa- same complex. Same apartment building in uh, West Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time we actually <laughs> met, uh, it was a very, very hot day, and our apartment complex sucked, so neither of us had yeah, air conditioning. Th- we don't have air conditioning, and there's no the way it's located, there's no cross breeze. Like, you can't open a window and a door and cool off your apartment. Yeah, so it's every, just these stagnant little hot boxes. So on a hot day, everyone who was, like, at home during the day, a lot of people work during the day, but people like me and Whitney work at night or work freelance. We were home a lot during the day. So uh, we would have our doors open all the time mm. just to get try, try to get any kind of oxygen inside any of ventilation we could possibly have. And uh, I was playing Guitar Hero rocks the eighties so in my apartment with it'll the door give, open. Give you a good idea as to the era we met in. <laughs> it was like late two thousands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm playing Guitar Hero rocks the eighties, and I'm doing a rather good job of it. I was very good at that game for a while, <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> And all of a sudden, Whitney just slides into my apartment without knocking and says, Is somebody playing limousine? You make it sound like I had on my socks and I'm like that shot in risky business. <laughs> it was more like Kramer and Seinfeld. A, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, you, just sort of, you, you invited yourself into those first couple of feet, <laughs> which was fine, by the way. But, uh, and, he was, and I was like, yes, yes, I am. And we briefly spoke about the parody band Limousine mm. from, um, from Homestar Runner. Thank you, Homestar yeah. Runner. And then we didn't talk for a year. <laughs> we barely we, spoke we, for we like saw, a year. We saw you coming and going a lot, like comings and goings and sort of hello neighbor. And yeah, we, I, I think I helped you also carry a shelf into your apartment at you one point. Did, well, what happened was I was living with roommates. My roommates rather unexpectedly decided to move out and they gave me like less than two weeks notice, mm. which sucked. And I could, the only, like I didn't have enough money to move they, anywhere. I hope they at least felt bad about it. I hope so too. But uh, in any case, they, I didn't have enough money to move anywhere. I didn't have money mm. for a security deposit anywhere. But fortunate for me, the apartment complex I was living in had a one bedroom that was opening up. Mm. So, so I talked to, I talked really next door to the next door. I talked over. them into moving my security deposit over and just mm. moving next door. So by that point, I was lonely, and I decided <laughs> to become more neighborly, and we mm. started just, I just ran into Whitney, and you were, I think you were still just dating Angie at the time. Yeah, we weren't, weren't engaged just yet. Uh, and um, we, all of a sudden, we were just talking, talking, and we realized we were both film critics, and it just kind of... <laughs> Everything fell into place. Yeah, well, we also realized that you, like, you owned a copy of uh, the movie Freaks. Or freaked. Freaked, yeah. You want a copy of Freaked? That was a good sign. We mm-hmm. both like brain donors. Uh, that was a good sign. That we could bond over our mutual love of brain donors. I remember and, you were testing me at one point, and you were like throwing aside, what do you think of RoboCop? Oh, I love RoboCop. Okay, good. What do you think of Aliens? I don't like Aliens. It's like, I don't know you, man. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something I'd do 15 years ago. 
Or yeah, you, said, years ago. you said, what, what do you think of aliens? I said, I'm not a big fan of aliens. And you did. You looked at me as if like a lobster just crawled out of my nose. It's like, oh, just like I don't know you, man. You even said, it's like, I don't even know you. Which is weird like, because I didn't know you. Yet. We didn't know each other very, <laughs> like we knew each other kind of. But yeah, yeah. But yeah um, uh, you got a gig with uh, uh, the website Crave Online. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure how you got that gig. but uh, um, I, uh, I had done a little freelance work for them, just doing a couple of reviews. Mm-hmm. They had lost their film content editor. And uh, because you, you I had bravely stepped in. Yeah. Well, they. They, they knew I was good with deadlines. They knew I was responsible. Mm-hmm. They liked my writing. And so they offered me the gig, which I was very fortunate to get. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they said was, we really want to start a podcast. And I'm like, okay, well, I know I need a co-host for that. Mm-hmm. And there are like True. two people I was considering, and you were my number one pick. And, th- and I'm glad I was we, – A, we lived together. Yeah. My, my schedule was open. Yeah. We, you basically – roped me We in. could just yell at each other. You want a podcast? Sure. sure. You're free to record. Uh, let me finish my bagel. Cool. Like that was it, yeah, basically, right. the first several years. And um, we still live really close together. Like we're within walking distance. Like when I moved yeah, to yeah. get married, I, I found a place only a couple of blocks away, uh, which was convenient, but not like that's what we were going for. It just worked out. <laughs> it was like I refused to move away from Whitney. But it worked out great. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Um, and and, and now, that, it, now that they've torn down the neighboring strip club that we both <laughs> live next to. It's not just a big dirt lot. There used to be, yeah. like, the, the seediest, ugliest strip club in the world. It was called Fantasy Island. Uh-huh. I'm not sure whose fantasy that was, but no, someone's. And, well, it, it used to be a tiki bar called Kilbo's. It was like a Hawaiian bistro, yeah. and they sold, like, some of the strongest drinks in town. A lot of people have nostalgia for Kilbo's, and then Kilbo's went out of business, and some really seedy strip club moved in. Yeah, for and a long, was, long time. For a long time, and then Fantasy Island recently failed, and they just raised it. Now it's just a big dirt lot. Well, it's going to Now be- we have a crossbreeze. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're going, to build, they're going to build an apartment complex, which I'm a little yeah. worried about because that might affect the sound quality because we record this yeah. at our apartment. But yeah, it might, might block off the, the highway that we're close to. Anyway, yeah, we'll see. you know no more about our personal geography, but that's how we met. Yeah, we, We've told the story before. There are the details. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for, for yeah, writing I've, in, and thank you for the kind words. That was really yeah. nice. Uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. CraveOnline.com is no more. It uh, has shifted brands. It's now Mandatory.com, and a lot of our old work is still on Mandatory.com. And a lot of it's gone. Well, yeah, they, they kind some of, of it, ran- Some of it, to which I say good riddance. They but, randomly yeah. took out a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, when you're working on a deadline and you're churning out three, four articles a day, which yeah. was the case in some, uh, some of the outlets we've worked for, yeah, uh, yeah you're not going to be bringing your A game to every single article. No. Um, so yeah, a lot of it's gone and a lot of it's, that's okay, but you can find some of, oh, some old episodes of, of that podcast we were on the B movies podcast, which yeah, we, some a, of them, are, name, some of the more recent ones are still up. A, yeah. a title we came up with in like literally five minutes. Uh, <laughs> no, the B movies, but sure. Yeah. Can we think of something better? We'll think of something better later, and we never did. Yeah, we never did. Yeah. Um, well, eventually we had Critical But yeah, Plan, there's, there's was, the, the B-Movies podcast. Some of the old episodes can still be found on Mandatory.com. Yeah. But um, uh, I don't... I, I I know you're not a big fan I, of, of I, our I early work. Any writer but, who's prolific enough looks at their early work and goes, no thanks. Yeah. And uh, that's how I am. Just, I would really... We, we've evolved a lot since then. Yeah. It, it, was, it was like almost 15 years ago at this point. Oh, so, 10, yeah. 10. It was... Uh, Craven Line was 10. Oh yeah, I guess you're right. But yeah, still, was, yeah, the first been... episode was 2011. One of the first step, uh, the first movies we reviewed was Sanctum, the 3D mm. underground cave thriller. Yeah, it wasn't very good. No, it wasn't very good. Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, anyway, um, thanks again for the letter. Thank you for the letter. Uh, this is a letter from Zach. Hello, Zach. Hi, Zach. Um, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Yes. Or this is spelled Rock Mister McCool. Ooh, Mister McCool. Mr. McCool um, was my father's name. I'm just just call me old Rock. Uh, <laughs> Long time listener, and I love all your shows. Thank you. That's thank you. Uh, first, I wanted to say Whitney. Oh, I absolutely loved your audio drama, Love It Nana. Oh, thank you. Yay! 
thanks for listening and thanks for for the compliment. Uh, it brought me to tears, which wow. was a, which as a truck driver that fills vending machines made for an awkward moment out in public. <laughs> <laughs> These Cheetos are making me cry. Um, That's amazing. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you. So so sweet of you. Um, yeah, that, that that was sweet. I. I have to credit that to Chelsea Spirito, who uh, who just gave a great performance in that that radio drama that we recorded at, at my church. If anyone um, uh, is maybe new and doesn't realize that Whitney uh, also uh, writes, directs, records, edits, and releases radio dramas, he's done two so far. Uh, they just recorded a third, but the editing process is long. Yeah, that'll so, take yeah. a while. But um, yeah, and if you're if you're a Patreon at our top level, a patreoncom Acclaim network, you get it for no extra charge. If you just want to listen to the radio dramas, you can message him on Twitter and uh, yeah, t- uh, Twitter it's or, like, it's, or like, it's a couple bucks. What is it? It's it's like ten, ten bucks. Ten bucks. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. You can buy the two. They're ten bucks each. Uh, if, if you're a little strapped, maybe I can make you a deal. I can sell you both. Well, for I think when you're package. three, maybe you should do like three for twenty five. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of so yeah, but the third one's coming as soon as I'm done editing it, which will happen in probably several months. So I don't want to start hyping it just. Yeah, yeah, it's a little yeah. faster than that. I think. But yeah, the, the last one is called Love at Nana, which takes place at a, a goth shop uh, in Santa Monica, California, which was a real goth shop. It's where all the counterculture oh. kids went in 1991. That's cool. And yeah, it's a little drama, homage to the shop and a little drama that takes place therein. It's just a conversation. That's cool. Um, anyway, second, I wanted to uh, give my take on a topic of the topic of CinemaSins. This is another CinemaSins letter. Got it. And how their videos are looked at. I've watched the channel on and off since they started, and I personally don't see where people have such an uproar about what they do. The way I view it, they are doing what most people's goal on YouTube is, to entertain the viewer. Mm. I've never looked at their videos as reviews of the movie. It was just their way of having fun and entertaining the viewer. This can be uh, seen pretty clearly in the that the sins have moved into more comedy and jokes, such as running jokes about the narrator's college girlfriend and overlarge captions with the location on screen. I'm also a subscriber to their podcast, The Sincast, where they talk openly about their love of film and how writing for the videos can bring new appreciation to the movies. Now, that is to also say that there are people that may watch their videos and take them too seriously, which I am clearly, uh, which I am not nearly smart enough to judge if that is the creator's fault or not. Uh, I don't want to come off as an angry fan of theirs. I just wanted to give my take as a fan of what they do and the humor they bring to me and to the viewers. Thanks for everything, Zach. Uh, that's a to- mm. that's totally fair, and I know a lot of people who do enjoy Cinema Sins mm. um, in a totally healthy, positive way. And our only concern uh, is the idea that they may be perpetuating false ideas about what criticism is or should be. Yeah. And uh, perhaps in an unexamined way and that they maybe could cop to a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, if you're, you know, as with anything, you can consume any kind of media mm. healthily, I think, yeah, as long as yeah. you just keep your head about you and don't like mm. fall prey to propaganda mm. or... Even if it's something really disgusting... You can, yeah. Watch, yeah, like, watch you can watch the Human Centipede <clears throat> movies and come away unscathed. I don't necessarily recommend it. <laughs> the Human Centipede movies are a comment on the way we consume and reconsume media. They are. I've written an essay about that. They are no, they're yeah. they're not unintelligent. I just think they're gross and maybe not good. Well, they're they're, they're so. Di- it's like a Serbian film actually has a lot of really important political. Uh, messages in it about Milosevic and you yeah. know the, the the way arts were consumed in that area of the world and. Uh, you know the the fact that it's called a Serbian film uh, actually relates to the, the habit that a lot of Serbian films were renationalized for uh, international 
consumption, kind of erasing Serbian identity. So they wanted to call this, this is definitely a Serbian film. Mm-hmm. And this is the disgusting things. that Ser- There's a lot of really important political commentary going on in, in a Serbian film. The problem is, it's so repulsive that it's difficult to consume any of those messages. Right. Now, of course, we're not calling Cinema Sins repulsive. What mm-hmm. we're just saying is that there may be different takeaways depending yeah, on how yeah, you yeah. view it and depending on what attitude you come into it with um, what your knowledge of criticism might be um, and it's something that's kind of deeply personal to us as critics I think if you're not a critic you might look at Cinema Sense yeah. and say who gives a shit what's the big deal and you might be right mm. but as it would be like if um, I, for example you read a lot of articles about say cops and they're talking about how movies portray police officers and how it's not realistic, and that creates an unrealistic expectation of police officers. I remember when CSI hmm. was first a big hit show. I read articles in the Los Angeles Times where the police departments are talking about, like, yeah, now everyone thinks that we're going to bring in a fucking laser and, like, a <laughs> chemical bath or something like that for every put, single Put on the goggles scene. and the, the blue lamp. Yeah. A, we don't have the budget. B, if we did have the budget, we don't have, like... The enough crews to cover every single crime constantly, so where there's a constant <laughs> backlog here. Yeah, we could give you the full CSI treatment in six months. Yeah, we. It's just it not a, plausible. CSI is a fantasy of how this works. Reminded of that great scene in The Big Lebowski where they find his missing car. He's like, "Oh man, who stole this?" And the cop is just—he's in the impound lot. He's got a clipboard. He's just a, a uniform beat cop. It's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, here's there's probably somebody just puked in it. I'm sorry, it smells so bad, or maybe a vagrant slept in your car." It's like, "Well, who took it? Do you have any leads?" And the cop just like looks up from his clipboard, just like a small beat, and he like switches into sarcastic mode. Well, we have some people down at the crime lab looking into it. We- <laughs> It's like, but, uh, you know, we, we could, uh, we, we, they got, we're working really hard on this. They got us working in shifts and then he cracks up. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> leads. <laughs> it's like, just be glad you have your freaking car back. Right. So my only concern, well, not my only concern, but my mm-hmm. principal concern with something like Cinema Sense is that it makes, to people who don't pay attention to film criticism, it might make it seem like film criticism is just a list of nitpicks. Yeah. And, and there's a lot more to it than that. And it also suggests that, you know, like those nitpicks have greater validity than they actually do most yeah, of the time. Yeah. Like every once in a while, I'll nitpick. Every once in a while, I'll find a real plot hole that pisses me off. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's not a big fucking deal. I mean, th- those those nitpick videos, and we've been talking about this a yeah. lot in recent letters episodes. Those nitpick episodes, the the, na- the notion of the cranky critic, the mm-hmm. sort of the critic who comes at films in bad faith, who are going at it, you know, to make a comedy bit rather than offer any sort of criticism. They use criticism as sort of a springboard for bits. Yeah. Uh, is, is sort of a, a little bit damaging to criticism. And I felt that uh, audiences were, and I thought the CinemaSins people themselves were, uh, doing a kind of savvy parody of that kind of nitpicky culture that they were sort of making, f- like in, in compiling everything that was, quote, wrong with a movie. Mm. They were uh, sort of sending up this... Uh, habit, this tendency a lot of people had to nitpick on movies. I don't think I didn't think that they were sort of being nitpicky necessarily themselves. I thought they were doing No, it. but that functionally but, uh, is yeah. what they're doing regardless. Again, so, but again, yeah. it took me a long time to realize that nitpicking and a satire of nitpicking look identical. Yeah. So it was kind of difficult for me to to defend them after a while. But yeah, if they have some sort of ancillary podcast where they're talking about delving through all of these little nitpicks, writing about them gives them a way of looking at film in sort of a more intelligent way themselves, yeah. then that's wonderful. If they wonderful. provide a counterpoint, that's great. Yeah, if they are yeah. providing a counterpoint, that's fine. Fair yeah. enough. 
And so, yeah. Like, yeah, we didn't mean. We, I don't think we ever meant to fully go into this total rant about mm. cinema sense. It just came up in a thing, mm. but like. You know, we're, we're film critics and we're defensive about the, the form, our, that we're, yeah, the yeah. form, the medium in which we, mm. uh, we, we we take it very seriously. So yeah, yeah, I, 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 I ranted on Twitter a lot about yeah. when some filmmaker says, "Oh, so this critic is just a jerk. They they're just a failed filmmaker." And it's like, "Hey, Chris McQuarrie, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me tell you a thing about critics." Uh, and th- and that's my contribution to culture as a rant on Twitter. Well. I'm a small man. Uh, <laughs> We're all small. Here, here's a letter signed off as uh, Anthony, your loyal listener, who um, may have unknowingly become a podcast junkie. So here's uh, a letter from Anthony. Uh, greetings, Beast Man and Rockmeister McCool. Thank you. This Brow, McCool Brow. is spelled uh, K-U-H-L. McCool. 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 McCool! <laughs> You're off the case, McCool! McCool's a good cop! <laughs> I find this, I hope this note finds you, the most, you most excellent gentleman, well. Thank you. I know in many entertaining discussions you've had asides about music, and I have a question related to music in movies. Oh, cool. My question was aspire, inspired by a child that I saw when I went to go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. While waiting in the theater lobby for a friend to show up, Blue Swedes hooked on a feeling came over the speakers, and a boy of no more than 10 years old lit up. He began to belt out the chorus, serenading his family with his rendition of that oldie. <laughs> I'm hooked on a feeling. Sorry about your ears, anyone listening to earbuds. <laughs> Whitney, don't hit the table. That's the most important part, that double drum hit. I know, but yeah. you didn't have to kill uh, us. What since, you... since I'm actually older than that version of the song, but still slightly younger than the original B.J. Thomas version, yeah. uh, it really warmed my heart to see a youngin being so enthused about a classic song. My guess is that he took... Uh, uh, took to it thanks to the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie and the Blue Swede track being used heavily to promote the film. Yep. Of course, the child's love of the song also could be the result of a good parenting, <laughs> which in case those parents totally rock, or maybe they're just a Reservoir Dogs fan. That's where I was first introduced yeah. to that version, yeah. I think it was in a commercial as well. But anyway, yeah. another instance where I've noticed fairly recent movies... Uh, Leading to a renewed popularity of old music include Iron Man's inclusion of the soundtrack of the Black Sabbath song that shares its title. Yep. I remember the guys in their 20s were coming out of the movie saying how they needed to hear that song again. <laughs> I am Iron Man. Try to bend me if you can. I don't know the actual lyrics. Yeah. Um, Lastly, there was Thor Ragnarok. Ah, I knew my heart in my heart of hearts that everyone in the world is actually a Led Zeppelin fan, and that third Thor movie helps to remind movie fans everywhere how much they love the Immigrant Song. Remember when you couldn't get Led Zeppelin songs in movies? They were like yeah. really adamantly against it for a while, and it's still pretty rare. But mm. like, there was a time when Zeppelin, you just couldn't get Zeppelin. They're, in fact, almost, almost famous wanted to use. Um, oh, did they use Tony Dance or Tony Danza? T- Tiny Dancer instead. Well, no, they didn't use right. it instead. There was a scene in the uh, director's cut of Almost Famous mm. where, in order to, because it's a story about a teenager who wants to uh, be a rock and roll like. Journalist, yeah, yeah. and his mom doesn't think rock and roll is real music or it's real art. Uh, and he, in order to prove to her that this is a worthwhile ambition for him, he plays Led Zeppelin's um, "Stairway to Heaven." Okay, and there's a scene in the movie where the movie was going to stop. And we were just going to watch these people listen to Stairway to Heaven, well, the whole of Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they were going to just, and they're just going to talk about like, isn't this amazing art? Mm. Led Zeppelin wouldn't give him Stairway to Heaven <laughs> for this scene that was explicitly about, about how, how amazing Stairway is, to Heaven yeah. was. 
And so that's it. So that was the end of that. So they mm. had to cut that scene out of the movie. That's too bad. But now you can get Immigrant yeah. Song anywhere. It's weird. <laughs> In fact, uh, if you saw the American remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, they had a good cover the, of it. There was a cover of it over, over the – it's a little obvious. But it's, yeah, it's fine. Well, there's a good I, – uh, I, think, I think in both of those cases, it was a little obvious. I come from the land of license. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's Norse. Okay, I actually yeah. really like uh, – if you if you see School of Rock, a movie mm. I don't care for because I grew up with teachers and it's actually a <laughs> bad representation of the education system. Otherwise, it's fine, like but I'm school. too close to it. I like school about I, I understand. It's one of those ones where I was just talking about, like, mm. if you're a film critic, Cinema Sins might hit you a little close to home, otherwise, mm. who cares? If you grew up in, like, an educational system, like, with two parents who were educators, School of Rock might rub you the wrong way. Because he does, he, he drops, sabotages drops their education. the curriculum. He yeah, yeah. sabotages their education for, like, a year. <laughs> it's terrible. You should go to jail for that. But uh, other than that, it's very, very cute. I, mm. it's, not a, it's not an ill-intentioned film, and it's fine. Mm. But uh, they wanted to use in a really short scene that was just going to be the whole class singing immigrant song. Mm. But they had to beg... Led Zeppelin to do it. So what they did was in that scene where they were actually performing all at the end and had a huge crowd, mm. they filmed a, a video of Jack Black begging Led Zeppelin to let him use the song <laughs> and had like thousands of people in the crowd beg, please, Led Zeppelin, let them use the song. It's on the DVD. It's really cute. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Immigrant Song. Uh, let's face it. There can't be any question that that track was, is, and will always be totally awesome. True. Immigrant song rules. Yeah. Immigrant song's awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm really hoping this trend of classic pop and rock continues to be discovered by younger generations. Uh, if it does, I was curious to hear what songs you'd like to see introduced to young moviegoers. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be chart toppers. It can be the songs yeah. that are just near and dear to you that never caught fire for whatever reason. Well, um, the example you didn't cite is the one from my own youth, and that was The Resurrection of Queen by the movie Wayne's World. That was a big one. Um, that but, movie became a chart topper again. Yeah. Yeah, just because uh, Wayne's World popularized. It wasn't even yeah, that big a hit originally. Bo- Bohemian Rhapsody wasn't a big hit. Uh, they had to sort of fight to make it the single, and it was too. And all of the criticisms they brought up in Bohemian Rhapsody by Mike Myers because he resurrected the song. He plays the character in that in that scene. That's a cute uh, bit, and I'd never I'd never complain about that bit. Yeah, but uh, yeah. that's the best bit in the movie. Yeah. But uh, the um, he's right. It's too long. It's too long. It's too weird. It's, it's not hummable. Yeah, it's, it's hard to put on the radio. Mm-hmm. You can't play any other it's, songs it's like, in that it's, block. It's part part ballad, but then there's a weird bit in the middle. And yeah, um, it's a brilliant song. But it's not a single as we currently yeah, know yeah, it or ever uh, did, really. Uh, so, yeah, because of Wayne's World, because that movie was a big hit, and because they decided to employ Bohemian Rhapsody in this bizarre sort of way. And its entirety uh, at the beginning is its al- anthem. Almost. They kind well, of they, they, they faded in and out a couple yeah, times. But, but they um, pretty much play the whole thing. Yeah, then these these kind of funny characters get behind this really bizarre song, and it mm-hmm. just hit just right in the early 90s. Sure. And, yeah, Queen records started to sell again. And, in fact, some would say not only is Bohemian Rhapsody resurrected, but Queen is resurrected. They were kind of fading. Yeah, Queen, Queen again, They were a Queen little bit of a way cult out. band at that point. Yeah, they were and, on yeah. their way out. Like, a lot of bands, their popularity had waned. And mm. then Wayne's, Wayne's World mm. made it contemporary again. So, yeah, we definitely got <laughs> it, it. It waned and then it waned. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, so, on, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, what songs would you want to hear? On a related note, which songs from film soundtracks do you think never got a fair shake? My go-to example is Wang Chung's Hypnotize Me from 1987's Inner Space. <laughs> the song made it onto the American Top 40, but peaked at 36. and isn't one that comes up much in discussions about music from the 80s. As always, I wish you and your families all the best and look forward to every new podcast from your fine fellows. Sincerely, Anthony. Thank you. Um, I think it's interesting because you got to remember that pop music in movies was not a thing, really, mm. until... Really, the 70s was really sort of coming together in earnest. It had been done mm. a little bit. 
uh, mostly in like a lot of experimental films in the, yeah. in the 50s. The Scorpio, Scorpio Rising, Rising is yeah. the most famous example. Uh, but Martin Scorsese started to employ actual pop music tracks in movies set in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. and people started to follow suit. And it wasn't until, I think, The Big Chill that it became... Huge yeah, to like, do that. You could those, sell the those, soundtracks, those Motown and, hits and you could all compile. Yeah, and, and you could like sell nostalgia for this music. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that something like the Big Chill was being sold to people who remembered the music at the time, and I get all the big hits on one record, and also you have a connection to them because of this movie, so it's a bit more emotional. When I was young, and I was like there when this started to really become like a huge trend. These mm-hmm. old oldies soundtracks. Was it Stand by Me? No, though that was a good one. For me, the first one that made me like, you know, this is all music from before I was born, and I totally fell in love with it, was Good Morning Vietnam. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, great soundtrack. Great mm-hmm. soundtrack. Some of uh, Robin Williams' bits haven't aged very well, but <laughs> a lot of them have. A lot of them yeah. are really funny. But yeah, Sloop John B was like my favorite song for mm-hmm. a really long time. It was just a good collection of, of uh, smash hits. I'm trying to remember... Another one that was really cool, uh, one of my favorite like jukebox soundtracks is uh, French Kiss. Okay. Just really, really great French romance mm. tunes, a couple yeah, of covers yeah. that are, like, in French. and mm. um, It's just a really, really good hanging out in your backyard with someone you love, having a couple of glasses of wine mm. kind of track. I, like, my parents used to listen to it all the time. Okay. And um, it just it's just a good collection of songs. So that's yeah, one. That's uh, well, a soundtrack that I felt like never quite got its due. The... the- the soundtracks I really admire are the ones that kind of dig up uh, or resurrect old hits. Um, mm-hmm. Now, for somebody my age, something like Blue Sweet, Hooked on a Feeling, has always been kind of around. So yeah. I, when I hear it in, on the soundtrack of something like Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm like, oh, that one again. Yeah. That's not creative. And yeah. I, I kind of get snippy about it. This is a bad soundtrack. This is all old ringers. This is, they're introducing uh, it to teenagers yeah, but, though, who've never seen it, but heard yeah, it before. Th- but thinking yeah, thinking of a, like a, a 10-year-old singing Hooked yeah. on a Feeling because of Guardians of the Galaxy. That warms your heart, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, a, a little a bit. Time. It's like, okay, somebody needs to hear that for the first time. Exactly. And, um, so there are some filmmakers who are really, really good about employing pop hits. Scorsese is one of them. Yep. Uh, my boss, Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino's very, he's, very good at it. He's, 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 uh, he's resurrecting quite a few great yeah. jams that totally flew under the radar otherwise. Like, no denying. Uh, my favorite is John Waters because yeah. he listened to... Like the trash gutter rockabilly from the 1950s, this, mm-hmm. which I love. Listen to the soundtrack to Hairspray, which is full of like it has like a couple of original early songs, but, 60s dance hits. But yeah. it's all, but they're not hits though. They're like they're like movies songs that were kind of hits. Yeah, they were like hits in Baltimore and like yeah, the but like 60s, they weren't actual yeah. hits. So like they're just these weird songs about different bugs. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, there's this, a face off in the movie where somebody dances to the roach and then somebody else dances to the bug. Yeah, like these. And those were actual dance songs in the early yeah, 60s. But they're kooky and weird, and mm. no one would remember them if they mm. weren't in Hairspray. Yeah, the original Shake a Tail Feather, which was in Blues Brothers, mm-hmm. but that was in Hairspray as well, the, yeah. or, the original uh, track. Wes uh, Anderson used to be really good about this, too. Mm. His first, uh, like, Rushmore and, uh, mm. in particular, had a really, really good I, I know soundtrack. He, uh, he did, had an interesting soundtrack for The Life Aquatic, which was all covers, though. Um, um, yeah, Sue yeah. George mm. uh, did, uh, did uh, Bowie, covers of... Bowie covers. Bowie yeah. covers, and I think he did them in Portuguese, mm. and apparently uh, no one told, like, Wes Anderson until after the tracks had been, like, recorded that uh, Sue George just changed the lyrics. <laughs> like, just ex- singing whatever. Except for the parts in English, he was just singing whatever he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
Um, so yeah, soundtracks that yeah. like I think should have gotten big. I think Big Night is a really really great soundtrack. Yeah. I, mean, I have a lot of affection for that movie. You can tell. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what other good soundtracks. Now there you, are. you you bring up uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, and we've talked about this endlessly. How you know the, here's where the '90s nostalgia comes back. Uh, during the '90s, soundtracks were bigger business. People would come up with hit soundtracks, mostly contemporary hits, but sometimes compilations of older songs and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they were su- such big business that they would recoup losses from failing films. They, they, they were just soundtracks were gigantic business, and I'm fi- I find it kind of fascinating that soundtracks still have that power. Mm-hmm. Uh, something you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Guardians of the Galaxy. I think it's an okay movie, but um, I, I find that a film can still have a hit soundtrack to be kind of heartening. Yeah, in, in the post CD era, and I think just any time that there's like. Uh, what movies do, I think, with mm. old music is that they create new connections um, mm. so that, you know, there's a lot of old music out there. You could listen to it and think it's really, really great. But when you're watching a story unfold and you have an emotional connection to that story and you care about the people in that story and then mm. part of that story incorporates an oldies song that you've either never heard before or never heard in this context, all of a sudden that song goes from being a good piece of music to something that means something to you. Mm. So that, and I think it's what Wayne's world did. It became an anthem for these characters who mm. were very charming and we really loved them. So that I think is what movies can do mm. for oldies. And, yeah, but yeah. oldies also have a really great way of reframing movies. And like, mm. they come with a certain cachet. Uh, D- uh, David Simon had a good bit about this. He uh, was the um, uh, producer of the wire. He created the wire, mm. which is, Still arguably the best television series ever made. Um, and uh, he had a bit about a soundtrack. And The Wire is a great soundtrack. Hmm. Uh, not only is it interesting tracks, some of them are local to Baltimore, some of them are more distinctly thematic. Um, but uh, he had a rule about when you're using a pop song on a soundtrack. Hmm. And the rule is this. Uh, it needs to connect to what's happening on camera lyrically or musically but not both. Mm. If it's doing both, Otherwise, it's, it's just on the notes. Yeah. yeah, it's too. It's on the notes. It's too obvious. Like it doesn't make. It doesn't work. Mm. Like if you were playing, like if there was like some sweet and charming rom com, and then two people kissed, and then that pop song, and mm. then he kissed me yeah. was playing, you'd roll your eyes. Oh. Uh, but uh, if you did something like I'm trying to think, if you played a romantic song that had lyrics that were nothing about kissing. Mm. That would be fine. That would play okay. That would like work mm. as that would support what's on camera without necessarily overpowering it or just doubling up and making it redundant. Yeah. So picking the right pop song for your soundtrack is actually trickier than people think. It's not as simple mm. as what do you like. Well, that that's an Oscar category I've been gunning for yeah. on the side for a little bit is best music supervision. Mm. And music supervision, I think, is is a very important, very careful science. Putting together a good mix CD is no mere compilation. Mm. You have to make sure the songs flow into one. There's a, a bit in the High Fidelity book about how to make a proper mixtape. Yeah, it's like you it's don't in the put, movie too. Let's you, talk about the movie. You, you don't put your thesis right at the start. You hide it in the, in the, the middle of side B. That's what the, <laughs> this whole tape is about. That was my intention when I gave this to you as a romantic gesture or whatever it was. Yeah, you'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. You have to start strong. You can't start with like 
several big hits in a row. You can start with one big hit if you like, but then you kind of mellow out a little Gotta bit. Do a couple you, of B yeah, sides, yeah. couple, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. There, there's a modulation to making a good mix, mm-hmm. and I feel like uh, film music supervision is that, but also paired with an image. It's even more careful. I remember I was working in development for a little <clears> while, and um, mm-hmm. there was some talk about like what songs should be put in this movie that were that was being produced. And um, one thing that I learned was, in a lot of contemporary movies, especially comedies, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, they don't necessarily plan the song choice out beforehand because they're just like, okay, listen, the movie's coming out in three weeks. What's a big hit right now? Yeah. yeah. And they just put whatever is currently popular in there, which is, you'll notice that in a lot of comedies or just sort of fly by night, quickie kind of Hollywood productions that they're trying to be as contemporary as possible. So Oftentimes you, that ages them so quickly that it, it just it hurts. It ages them, and also, uh, but on the more interesting side of the spectrum, sometimes they'll choose a hit that's like a little bit off, like a little bit off center. But it's like it somehow made it its way under the charts. It's like, oh well, that's hit, so we'll include Primus on this soundtrack. It's like, why is Winona's Big Brown Beaver playing in the middle of this? <laughs> The middle is a romantic scene from this comedy from the late 90s. It's like, well, it was a hit at the time. What, what, what can we say? Uh, so, yeah, th- th- there can be some, like, unintentional weirdness that kind of, like, sideways itself into these kind of bland What's Hollywood comedies. What's the unexpected soundtrack that found its way into your rotation? Um, it's got to be, like, one that's just, like, from a weird movie or, or whatever, where you just you never even watch the film like sometimes. <laughs> I find everyone's got, like, this one soundtrack let's do all the time, just get that one song on it. Yeah. Oh, golly. There, there, there was a time when I was just, like, accumulating all the Danny Elfman scores I could. So go. I got the soundtrack record to Mission Impossible, like, Danny Elfman's score to Mission Impossible. And, and it has, like... <laughs> And it has, yeah, you know, the, the Mission Impossible theme is reorchestrated by Danny Elfman, but also has the reorchestration by U2 when they were in that weird electronica phase. Oh, yeah. Um, and I got it because it was a good thing to put on, like, my own mixtapes in the middle. Here's just the Mission Impossible theme to sort of re-energize <laughs> you. It's good intermission music. So I had, yeah, the Mission Impossible score in my collection for a while. <laughs> that was good. On cassette. It was a little, little bit of a bizarre thing. Yeah. Anyway, the art of the soundtrack I don't think gets discussed enough and I'm glad you brought it up. I actually love the way Guardians of the Galaxy uses its soundtrack in the story. Not just, but yeah, it's a collection of pop hits. It's about a mom trying to teach her son about a bunch of pop hits. Mm-hmm. But what I love about Guardians of the Galaxy is that that soundtrack is his mom. Yeah. And so she gets to be with him in this entire mm-hmm. journey and every time they're playing that song, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's cool. Sometimes it's an interesting counterpoint mm-hmm. to the action. But the important thing is that's his bomb. That's and his, she's yeah. there with him. That's very sweet. I think it's a it's, very, very good idea for how although, to incorporate jukebox music mm-hmm. into a film and have it not mm-hmm. just support character but be a character. Yeah, but what kind of sick mom makes a mixtape for her seven-year-old son and includes Cherry Bomb on it? That's a dirty song. Oh, he'll grow into it. <laughs> he'll grow into it. He's, he'll go over his yeah. head until he's in college and then he'll be like, wait a minute. <laughs> my mom! My mom gave me a song with a hand job in it. <laughs> this is, <laughs> grab you till you're sore? Oh, please. That's not about anything else. Uh, let's, well, let's do, we got time for one or two more. All right, here, here's a letter from Luke. Hello, Luke. Hi, Luke. Um, hey, you two. I'm a new listener who's been binging through your content for the past week, so I apologize for not remembering the affectionate nicknames, but I'll get on that. (laughs) It's okay. Thank you so much. Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. That's fine. 
I've been facing down some absolutely dreadful work days, and your show has been getting me through some of these mornings and that have gone deep into the night. Oh, gosh. I oh, that, that yeah. sucks. I appreciate it and love the thorough nature of your commentary that's filled in such camaraderie and good vibes. Uh, chemistry is a tricky thing, and damn, you two are just a joy to listen to. Oh, well, thank you. It's very sweet. After 10 years, we better have good chemistry. <laughs> Nitro and glycerin we are Anyway, I'm late to the party But I wanted to hit you guys with my top ten of the decade Oh, cool uh, Mainly because I'd love to hear your takes on some of the things I might have missed I've got some of your working on the back catalog to do yet But also because these movies I feel strongly about And would love to get you guys to watch Are they the best? Maybe not I have a strange relationship with artistic perception And find myself liking the strangest things sometimes But they're the movies that have stuck with me Made me laugh, made me cry I love someone mm. with interesting tastes Let's do okay. this uh, I'm all for uh, I'm all for that which leaves a lasting impression, even when it might come from an unexpected place. Keep up the good work. Thanks for helping me through the hard days. The top ten presented in general mishmash because numbering is hard uh, <laughs> and arbitrary. And so don't yeah, worry about it. So yeah. Uh, the black coat's daughter. Hmm. Uh, I thoroughly believe after seeing Gretel and Hansel that Oz Perkins deserves a mention in the same breath as Eggers and Aster. For me, the film is a tonal perfection that stuck with me since the first time I saw it. This this is my have-you-seen-this-movie-and-I'll-champion-this-one uh, and until people play dead. Have you seen The Black Coat's Daughter? <laughs> I have not seen Black Coat's Daughter. I have a confession to make, neither have I. But I do, I do think Gretel and Hansel is great, and I love I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Mm-hmm. So I think Oscar Perkins is the real deal, and I've been meaning to get back to The Black Coat's yeah. Daughter. So thank you for, thank for championing it. I'll make sure it's um, on my list. The only thing I know about Osgood Perkins is that he's Anthony Perkins' son. Uh, that's all I can say. That's um, a cool thing know. to be. Uh, a Monster Calls, the first movie in eons to make me cry. I saw this in the theaters and it was an absolute mess by the time I... I was an absolute mess by the time the story was over. I enjoyed, adore J.A. Bayona for what he crafted here, adapting a story about mortality, grief, and a mother's love. Uh, uh, this I, is one of the... Oh, sorry, is he done? Is he done? He's done. Yeah. Okay, uh, this is one of the movies that Wayne and I disagree the most on. <laughs> uh, I am 100% with you, Luke. Mm-hmm. A Monster Calls destroyed me in a theater to the extent... I saw it at a film festival. I saw it in the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm. And I was just this wreck, just pouring <laughs> tears and snot out of my face. Mm. And then, like, the next day, someone saw me in the street and was like, Hey, were you at the Monster Girls? Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> that movie came out not very terribly long after my father died. And it, I was going through a lot of the cycles of grief that that movie illustrated. Mm. And I thought it did it really, really beautifully and earnestly. And to the point that I wish I'd seen it before my dad died, uh-huh. and maybe I would have been better equipped to deal with it. So for me, I think even though it's a very blunt movie, I think it's a very mm-hmm. effective movie and a very important movie. Whitney doesn't like it. I, I don't. I can't get. It did make me cry. I'll say All that. Right. It got under my skin. It manipulated tears out of me. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> And you know, not all film that ma- films that make me cry are films I like. You know, it's just yeah. they they did it right. Um, uh, Forrest Gump makes me cry. I don't think it's. I, yeah, I find it the movie uh, to be actually yeah, like, rather insidious and unpleasant. Yeah, but my sister had a good line about Titan- Titanic. We all saw Titanic. We all cried at Titanic. Oh no, Jack, he's floating. I'll never let go, Jack, and let go. And uh, <laughs> she said she saw it. It made her cry. And then, like a couple hours later, she was mad at the man for making her cry. It's like, yeah, you, you realize pretty quick you were just manipulated. That's how it was in A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, felt, it felt forced. <clears throat> like, I, I feel like Titanic's pretty genuine. I feel mm. Monster is pretty genuine. A Beautiful Mind, I was watching, mm. like, I was like, oh, God, it's so beautiful. He kept her handkerchief. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's really contrived and shit. Damn it. <laughs> Yeah, A Monster Calls, I think, is a, a, maybe a good treatise as to, you know, why certain people might get into storytelling. But I think there's a lot of 
a lot of ham-fistedness and a lot of just bad ideas presented in that movie. I don't like, know about bad ideas. I think grief well, is very blunt regardless. Grief, so is, grief is blunt, but I feel like the characters are forgiven for a horrendous behavior because of grief. Well, I and, think, that's, and that's not a responsible thing to say. I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's about like society forgiving mm. them. I think it is about... One of the things that gets wrapped up in grief mm. is feelings of guilt on grieving wrong. Mm. And being able to forgive yourself for being in grief was actually something I had to learn. Okay. So I think I think I think it's one of those things where if you're not I, if you're not ex- going through what the movie is telling you to go through, mm. maybe that lesson doesn't apply. Well, maybe so. But yeah. you know, I, I also think that being in a grieving process shouldn't forgive you for like doing a lot of property damage and hospitalizing people. I'll grant Which you is that. something that the film actually argues for, that th- those things are okay in certain circumstances. And I don't mm. think they're okay. I think they're under- I think it says it's understandable. Well, understandable or not, the kid is not punished in the movie. Uh, and that's that's, okay. that's kind of... That didn't sit well with me at no, all. No, no, no. Um, we can have that conversation. Anyway, right, moving, on. Uh, moving on. Paddington 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll never be able to say just how much I love these movies. And somehow the sequel improved the clever wit and dry British humor that I thought might have been lightning in a bottle. On my bad days, and as someone who suffers from depression, there are a fair few of those. Yeah. This goes into the Blu-ray player, and uh, things start to seem a little less scary. Uh, Paddington 2 is really, mm. really cute. I feel like I'm the only one who prefers the original, though. I think they're both fine. They're both yeah. great. Like, I watch <laughs> them all any time, but if, like, if I had a choice of watching Paddington or Paddington 2, I'd watch Paddington 1 every time. I think I do like the second one a little bit better. The idea of a, a cartoon bear improving prison via marmalade is, is kind, of, kind of brilliant. That is a great bit. Uh, Absolutely 100%. I'll give yeah. you that. It's a wonderful movie. I, just, yeah. I think, kind of prefer the original. Yeah. But that's uh, also on the list, Thoroughbreds. Oh. This is 100% a stage play of, this, of a stage play sort of film, literally considering how it came to be. But the chemistry between the two leads and Pitch Black satire is a singular note I'm always thrilled to hear played. Uh, Arrival. Oh, wait, did you see Thoroughbreds? I didn't see Thoroughbreds. Yeah. So, uh, Arrival, I heard this one come up on a lot of the lists you read with good reason. It really is cerebral sci-fi at its best. Agreed. I really agreed. love Arrival. The Drop. I've been reading uh, Dennis you. Lehane for over a decade, and while this is probably his most digestible work, there's a brilliance to its ease, and I admired, uh, admire and appreciate. That movie got completely mm. overlooked, and I think that movie is great. Tom Hardy <laughs> That's plays the one with a, the puppy. Yeah, Tom Hardy plays uh, a bartender whose boss, James Gandolfini, and what was his last released movie? Mm. Uh, James Gandolfini, his bar, he owns the bar, and his bar is used by the mafia for money drops, like mm. on random intervals, and he concocts a plan to steal the money and that gets Tom Hardy in trouble and um, it's very very simple it is very very effective it plays like a really great like sort of French crime movie like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't have all those Americanisms where it's going to be full of like cool mm. action or torture or sex or whatever like that it's and Tom Hardy's really really great in it I love the ending so much the, the drop <laughs> is great I'm so glad someone put it on their list mm. didn't quite make mine but it's really 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 good yeah. I hope more people see it seriously if you want to see like a crime movie that most people overlook that's just mm. really smart and well done the drop is excellent the drop yeah. um, he also lists Ex Machina it's a hell of a thing trying to decide between this and Annihilation, but in the end, I can't pick against the small cast and the escalating tension of AI playing the winning hand. I love every note of this movie right up to its menacing final scenes. Yeah, I really dig my Ex Machina. And, uh, Ex Machina grew on me over time. I think it wasn't until someone had aptly pointed mm. out to the extent that I felt bad about not really thinking mm. about it, that it's not even remotely about artificial intelligence, but it's about men trying to figure out women that I was that, just that, like, oh, that, shit, yeah, that's so obvious. That, How did I miss that? That was me, by the way. I know. It's a film that's not about AI as it is about misogyny and yeah. uh, uh, 
creating the ultimate person, creating the ultimate woman, and what makes the ultimate woman treachery. Um, yeah. That's that's a big part of that movie. No, um, no, it's it's what men think women yeah, are. Yeah, that's yeah. basically it, and, and that's, that's what out, that's what out, uh, undoes for them, me. That's yeah. what makes that movie unique. I look at Annihilation, and I like Annihilation mm. a lot. I think it's great, but I see all the pieces in Annihilation. <laughs> okay. I see all the pieces that it came from. John Carpenter's The Thing, The Color Out of Space, blah 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 blah. Mm. Ex Machina becomes its own thing, and I, well, I think, think it's really awesome. I think Annihilation gives gives it, gives itself away in the title. It's about self annihilation. It's about this very Freudian well, concept. Yeah, this Freudian concept that we are driven to destroy ourselves, mm-hmm. and I think it, it plays very well. It is, is it it's a little obvious? Yeah, but I think it's it's still it's excellent. Presented but very if well. I had to pick one or the other, I'd pick Ex Machina. Uh, take shelter. I became a Jeff Nichols fan when I saw Mud, but it was Michael Shannon's magnetic and heartbreaking performance in this gem that solidified him as a director whose work I'd see no matter what, plus a towering and Oscar-worthy performance by Mr. Shannon. I have actually not seen this one. I, yeah, I didn't see Take Shelter. I saw um, Midnight Special. I saw Mud. I saw, I saw uh, Loving, uh, which was good, a little Oscar-baity, a little formulaic, but it was very well made. Love it. Like... It's so like sweet and downplayed. Almost nothing happens in Loving. That's like, kind of the problem with Jeff Nichols. Is that, I mean, again, maybe it's not uh, Take Shelter's problem, but a lot of his stuff is so underplayed. It's almost to a fault. Mm. Mud has this like lurid, sweaty Tennessee Williams quality mm. that I think lifts like, it out of that sort of Ozark noir. Well, I think or also, because it is, it's yeah. about kids and stories about childhood, everything seems super important because mm. you're a child and everything is super important. It's the only thing you've ever done. Um, and I think that lifts it out of it. Um, whereas the other stuff is, yeah, it's a little, a little restrained, maybe to mm. a fault sometimes. <laughs> uh, the Man from Uncle. Yay! Uh, I, I have a weird relationship with Guy Ritchie in that I never seem to like his movies that, I, that I'm supposed to like. This one was one of the most pleasant surprises in recent years. I had a smile on my face from beginning to end and rewatched it more times than I care to admit in a court of law. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And the last film on the list is Okja. Oh. I'm including this film because while being a huge admirer of Bong Joon-ho, it actually changed my life in setting me on a path towards cru- a cruelty-free lifestyle. It made okay. me think about the things I'd taken for granted. It set me on a different path. And while there are swings it takes that are foul balls instead of home runs, there's still enough to connect to save them from being strikes. Baseball analogies, yay. Uh, in the end, it changed my life, and I couldn't make a list without including it. Um, Okay, first off, Man from Uncle. I love Man from Man Uncle. from Uncle. Yes, really uh, stylish I, I defend, and fun. It's great. I think it's Guy Ritchie's best movie. I, I think I think the story sucks. I think a lot of the writing it's is bad. It's not about the story, but it's not about, it's not about the story. It's about watching Army Hammer and Henry Cavill in suits, and it does it exceptionally well. Agreed. Uh, Whitney and I don't mm. like Okja. No, we're the two of the only ones who are kind of down on. And Okja. actually, this um, is this is a really excellent example of. Uh, you know, people talk, oh, you're only looking for movies that support your politics. I support the politics of Okja just fine. I find mm. it really ham-fisted. Well, it, it's in making it uh, like a fantasy, it undoes a lot of its messages. Yeah. Uh, it's about, uh, it takes place in the future. There's a Very food, soon in the future. Very right? soon in the future, but there's a food shortage. And this corporation has found, has discovered this new animal. It's a like super little, pig. It's a little, yeah, they call it a super pig. It's like this hippo monster. That they can grow really quickly and can use to feed the masses. This new meat source, yeah. and and evidently it's like not only very tasty, but it has like much more nutrition than most mm. meats do. It like has all of the positives and none of the negatives of eating a meat. And uh, in um, order to sort of test out the the growing process, mm. blah 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 blah, they, they give 
different super pigs, different people all over the world. And what what environment a, is best for raising these pigs? And uh, One little girl raises a particularly giant pig, and mm-hmm. they make a big deal out of, like, oh, my God, her super pig is the biggest of all. And then you look at every other one, and it's the same size. Well, also, so it kind of undoes they, that entire premise. They establish early on that Okja, the pig monster, is, is also intelligent. Like, it can figure out this physics problem early on in the movie. Yeah. But... Only the little girl sees that, and only the audience sees that, and that's never brought up to any of the other characters. Like, you can't kill Okja. Okja is actually intelligent. Yeah. And, well, but this is actually... And here's the thing. I'm on the side of the evil corporation in this movie. That's uh, never a good sign. Which is never a good sign, because <laughs> I, I actually do agree with the politics. I actually am a vegetarian, and, you know, I think making meat is this is very cruel, but... You don't need to come up with this weird science fiction conceit to sell that. Just watch Richard Linklater's Fast Food Nation or any documentary footage of an actual slaughterhouse. Well, and, and the, that's going to be more effective. A lot of the and, things that they come up with in Okja in order to solidify just how horrible the treatment of this fictional animal is aren't things that actually happen. They're actually well, like hey, there's, there's actually more actually consideration happen. for the animals in real life. And those animals are treated very, very badly in real life. You didn't mm. need to go that far. You didn't, yeah, you just, you didn't you're kind to... of undermining your own message in that. By I think like they're, they're softening the message. Than it even is. This, like the vegetarians in that movie are this like really weird cadre of like super terrorists led by Paul Dano. That I'm not sure hypocrites. And I'm not sure if, we're, and if the... we're supposed to laugh at, at them or not. And then yeah. like, Tilda Swinton is a twin, and that makes no sense because there's there's no difference between the, the no, scheme of the twins. There's no particular need for it yeah, at all. It doesn't thematically connect. If anything. there was some big twist in that movie where it was revealed that Okja, and it's revealed, and spoilers for Okja, it's not much of a spoiler, but it's revealed that it's a genetically engineered animal. I, I thought like that from just, the beginning. Yeah, and, and that, that's kind I, of I, implicit in what's going on. We discovered yeah. this animal, so you made it. Okay, that's fine. And if they had, had announced that actually Okjaws are humans and we just tweaked a few yeah. uh, genes See, that to make them look shocking. like... Yeah, that would have been kind of, kind of shocking and it would have sold the point. If they had revealed to these people, no, they're intelligent and you can't murder these intelligent animals, that would be one thing. Uh-huh. If it turns out they were really people and we're, you know, we're cannibalizing ourselves to survive, that would be another thing. But they're just animals that they're sending into a slaughterhouse. They're not doing anything different to these animals. Yeah. I mean, not significantly. That than they do to a cow. So when so, they show, like, there's this big hedgehog. Oh, in the middle of this big show, we're going to show you what they're really doing to these animals. Most people understand that understand, or don't that's, care. That's what, yeah. That's a, I mean, it's it's not, a problem. You want to say that's a problem? We can talk about that. But this, I had this talk well, what with What did you them. think was going to happen to these animals? You're going to make them and slaughter them. That's, that was the that's understanding. what we're already doing to cows. And the whole point is we're low on cows. So we've invented a new animal. I, I again, how is that I, any less immoral than I what they were previously doing? I actually agree with the overall doing? ethos of Oaksha, but I don't think it works. The, mm-hmm. the, and I don't think it works like dramatically. Yeah. Um, I had a talk with uh, Shane Black. I interviewed Shane Black. <laughs> okay. Once. Um, I think I think only once, but uh-huh. I interviewed him for the Nice Guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nice Guys, by the way, great movie, really funny, fun mystery. Mm-hmm. There's a bit at the end of the Nice Guys where a conspiracy is revealed, and the movie sort of ends with, "Okay, good, and we've revealed this thing, this mm-hmm. big bit of corruption. I won't reveal what or how." Mm-hmm. Uh, and the implication is, and now everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. It's like at the end of uh, Clear and Present Danger. When Harrison Ford stands up to the President of the United States and goes to talk in front of Congress. And that's just it. Uh-huh. We don't see the President in jail. We just see him <laughs> go to talk in front of Congress. Because the implication is, once he talks to Congress, everything will be okay. And, and they'll get the bad President yeah, out of there. It, yeah. And now that, it's, now that it's out there, and it's like it's in the papers, it's in the courtroom, everything will be fine. Mm. Right? And I talked to Shane Black about this, and it was right around the rise of you know Trumpism and all this mm. kind of stuff. And I was just like, do you actually believe... 
that that would actually solve anything nowadays. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, I think we need to change the way we write these scripts. Yeah. Because yeah. the fantasy of now that the lie or the conspiracy or the evil has been revealed, we won't stand for it and everyone will reject it. People are so addicted to whatever ethos they have, to whatever hero worship they have, to whatever mm. party affiliation they have, to whatever conveniences they have, mm-hmm. that they're not going to change just because you tell them it's bad. Some, some will. Yeah. I'm not saying it's an endemic, it's, but it, like, it's not it's necessarily... The, Cap- the Capra fantasy. But yeah, yeah it's... it's it, it feels like an easy fix, and just life doesn't work that way right now. Yeah. Like, if life works that way right now, Trump would be out of office. It would have been like, okay, you did all these terrible things. We impeached you. We saw all this evidence. You let the yeah. evidence in because the system isn't corrupt. Can you and imagine then we're going to be like, a, wow. Can you imagine him at, a, like, a podium just bashfully saying, well, I made a mistake, and I'm really sorry. I really I don't know even, what I'm doing. I can't yeah. even imagine you it. Yeah. It would break my brain. Can you imagine him walking out of the White House without being dragged? No, I, I remember, <laughs> that really scares me when I think remember, about it. Do you remember yeah. just before he was elected, he had one press conference, and it was supposed to be about him kind of apologizing for the whole for being uh, so anti-media. No, it wasn't for being anti-media. It mm-hmm. was uh, it was supposed to be him for saying that Obama wasn't born in this country because oh, that was a- accurately seen as something that was a false, b really racist, mm-hmm. which was both of those things were accurate. There was false and racist. Trump. Makes everyone wait, walks out to the podium, and just says, President Obama was not born in this country. I can end this conversation right now. Mm. I, uh, he took credit for ending the argument. You perpetuated it! You can't just take credit for ending it! You can't just end it and be like, I have decided to let it go. I started a crisis. Oh, no, I I, I take it back, I take it back. There, see, look, I ended a crisis. Yeah! Yeah. He couldn't even just say I was wrong. He couldn't. It's incapable of saying he's wrong. Some people are like that. So no matter what you show them, what what the end of Okja is, and a movie as cynical as Okja, if it was a more innocent film, where the tone of it was, maybe the world has more love for animals. Yeah, Yeah, like maybe I would have bought that. Mm. But yeah, Okja, I want to love Okja. I know why people (laughs) love Okja. I just don't think it works. But again, if it made a huge difference to you, and I want to make this clear. Whatever critiques we have with the form of Okja, hmm. if it made a big difference to you, if it set the, you the down mes- a positive path, actually, so yeah, if the message you. hit you, that's a great movie to you. Hmm. It just didn't work for me. Yeah, it didn't but, work for me either. But I'm so glad it hit you. I'm so glad it set you on a positive path. I think we both put it on our worst of the year list. And, yeah, so, yeah, and people, like, it's a good thing no one listens to us, because otherwise people would have been mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> And, and, you know, now that uh, Bong Joon-ho has won Oscars and Parasite won Best Picture, everyone's mm-hmm. saying, oh, and Bong Joon-ho is just a spotless record. It's like, hang on a second. <laughs> Okja I, is be, at best really blunt. I, I'm going to be I'm gonna be the asshole here and say that Okja is bad and Snowpiercer is only good when you're in high school. And, uh, <laughs> and, and of course, I like I'm, I'm, on, more than I'm on the li- losing end of both of those I, arguments. I like Snowpiercer more than it. It's, it's very blunt, but I do think it works. I think it works. I think it works. It's blunt, but it works. I've said it before. It would have been great as a 15-minute short. Mm-hmm. And, and well, also... Your, your argument is actually quite sound. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a movie that's supposed to blow teenagers' minds. Mm-hmm. We need those. No, we do need those. It's true. It's okay to have like true, a target but, um, audience who is younger and like introduced to these audience, but, uh, the, to these topics for the first time. I understand that. I, under, I understand that's important, and I understand having you know these sort of easily consumed class metaphors are important for a certain age group. Yeah. Um, it's, we, it's, need to, we need to constantly revisit and reintroduce these things. It's the adults I meet that say that this is a very sophisticated metaphor that I take <laughs> issue with. It's like, no, well, it sounds like you're taking issue with the adults more than the movie. 
I suppose so. It's, it's uh, maybe maybe the reaction is what's getting my goat. Anyway, um, to, to sign off, Luke says, uh, "Thanks so much for taking the time to read this. I can't wait for your next episode, and I fully admit I I plan on writing writing your fine cinematic minds to victory in my Oscars pool. Take care. <laughs> uh, well, sorry about that. Yeah, sorry. Um, well, we, I did okay. I did not. No, <laughs> I, I, think this is the, I think this is the worst I have ever done this last year. But yeah, uh, I hope I hope what we said at least gave you some." Uh, some aid. Some <laughs> entertainment Oscars value, if nothing else. Well, listen, thank you for writing in. Thank you for contributing. We'll take those best of the decade lists, mm. as long as you want to submit them. We're just not going to dedicate whole episodes to them the way we did mm. for a couple of weeks there. Um, but uh, thank you, everyone, for writing in. Really, really great, smart, thoughtful mm. emails. We always always like hearing from you. and We, we like had some great conversations today. I think it's soon. been really cool. So uh, if you want to write in, uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email to write into. Send it along. We try to read as many as we can. We can't read them all, but we try. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to, and if you have the means, contribute to the show. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And we have a variety of tiers where you get to do various different things. Vote for future episodes. Listen to bonus content like the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. We're about to record an episode uh, about the Parent Trap Two, uh, which oh oh, do I have things to say about the Parent Trap Two? Okay. Oh, so, so that's not. Stay tuned. I have problems with the Parent Trap Two, mm-hmm. uh, but we also have uh, all our yesterdays, the podcast where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. We have only the best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have commentary tracks, Google Hangouts. We need to schedule another one of those very soon. Mental note, um, and more. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, especially for writing. And sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.